Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, February the 22nd, and I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. Headline, Hearing on Removing Books from Iowa Schools Leads to Testy Exchange, and this article was written by reporter Tom Barton of the Des Moines Bureau. A hearing on Monday on Iowa School District's processes for reviewing and removing school library books and materials that some parents and community members deem obscene devolved into testy exchanges between Democrats and Republicans. Iowa parents, many activists with the conservative group Moms for Liberty, told state lawmakers during a February the 6th hearing that there should be more restrictions and parental permission required for school books that they find obscene and divisive. Parents read passages containing profanity, descriptions and illustrations of sex, sexual abuse, and other content the parents said was not suitable to be in a school library. Representative Brooke Bowden, Republican of Indianola and the chair of the Government Oversight Committee said parents had gone through who had gone through the book review process with their schools were asked to speak before the committee on Monday about their experience before hearing later from superintendents and school board presidents from the Carlisle, Carroll, Johnston, Urbandale, Joaquin, and West Des Moines districts who deal with the review process. This is not a subcommittee on a bill legislating whether these books should be in schools, Bowden said in a statement to the Gazette. He continues, If it was, all members of the public on all sides of the issue would be welcome to come and share their thoughts on the legislation. This is a hearing meant to help us learn more about the book review process, and the parents who are in support of these books in schools do not have any experience with the book review process to discuss before the committee. Republican lawmakers question school officials about their book review process in the state of Iowa. The Waukee School District pulled the book Gender Queer off of its library shelves after some of the parents complained that the books had exposed their students to inappropriate content. However, a 10-person reconsideration committee unanimously recommended keeping the book Gender Queer in the high school library. The committee said the book's content provides, quote, a perspective that is relevant to today's teens and has an educational and social-emotional component for students interested or needing information on the topics in this book. Republican lawmakers, however, question the literary and educational value of books like Gender Queer that contain sexually graphic images. Bowden asked school officials in Carlisle, which chose not to pull the book from high school library shelves, whether a student would be allowed to wear a t-shirt with images from the book depicting sexual acts. And while a student would not be able to wear such a shirt, school officials said, 
Just one passage or set of images is not sufficient for a book to be considered obscene. Under state law, a book must contain obscene material when taken as a whole and, quote, lack serious literary, scientific, political, or artistic value. There is also an exception for the use of appropriate material for educational purposes in schools and in public libraries. I don't see how a book could be removed using the standards you've discussed here. And that's a quote from Republican Steve Holt of Denison. And he continued, And so that's the concern I have and something I think we need to take a hard look at. It seems to me there are probably mountains of books that could have literary value and connect to students without having some graphic images like we see in Gender Queer and some of these other books. Representative Sean Benuski, a Democrat from Des Moines, said there are graphic images in the Bible that, if we put these in comic book form, would not be appropriate on a t-shirt. And as a devout Catholic, I don't want the Bible banned from our public schools, Bagnuski uh, says. And this remark elicited a sharp rebuke from Representative Bobby Kaufman, a Republican of Wilton, to which Bagnuski chuckled, You can laugh all you like, but the hubris that's oozing in my opinion, from your statement, is speaking for itself, Kaufman said. Those of us that are here today are here as concerned parents. And to just make light of that and continue to grin at people that have serious concern about the materials, I think, speaks more about you than this committee. Earlier this past Monday, several parents and some students and educators spoke against the proposals in a special hearing held by Democrats. Rebecca Schertz, a junior at Carlisle High School, said that Gender Queer provided an honest and open account by the author that has helped students at her school that are questioning their gender identity or want to better understand the fluid world of gender identity and the many different venues, avenues, and nuances of identifying as non-binary. And in summation, in cases where school officials chose to retain the book, parents are afforded the option to request that their child not be allowed to view or check out the material. And the headline for this next article... Lincoln woman is killed in a crash recently near Palmyra. And this article was written by the Lincoln Journal Star newspaper. A 37-year-old Lincoln woman died on Friday near Palmyra after her car was struck by another vehicle as she turned across Nebraska 2, just west of the Oto County town, according to the county sheriff's office. Jennifer Hughes was struck while crossing the highway's westbound lane as she tried to turn east onto Nebraska Route 2 at about 3.30 p.m. Friday, according to the sheriff's office in their news release. Hughes was turning from the southbound lane of Nebraska 43 when she collided with a westbound car, driven by 84-year-old Dwayne Rogg of Lincoln, the sheriff's office said. The 37-year-old was pronounced dead 
At the scene, about a half a mile west of Palmyra, she was not wearing a seatbelt, the sheriff's office said. The other driver was taken by ambulance to a Lincoln hospital, and his condition is unclear at this time. Authorities do not suspect that alcohol was a contributing factor in this crash. Headline, this was from the Capitol Notebook. Iowa property tax fix signed into law, and this article was written by the Gazette's Des Moines Bureau. Iowa property owners are off the hook for about $130 million in taxes that they otherwise would have paid under an erroneous assessment formula. But local governments are left holding the bag under legislation signed into law this past Monday by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds. Changes to property tax law in 2013 and 2021 changed multi-residential properties like apartment complexes to be taxed at the same rate as all residential properties. However, no corresponding changes were made to the section of Iowa Code that defines the mathematical formula used to calculate the number that is used to establish the statewide taxable value for each property class subject to taxation by cities, counties, school districts, community colleges, and other taxing entities. The result? A higher percentage for residential property as a whole because former multi-residential was included. That rollback rate designed the cap to designed to cap the total taxable value for homes and farms from increasing more than 3% was set at 56.5% when it should have been 54.6%. Statewide, it means a savings of tens of millions of property tax dollars. Local government administrators had unsuccessfully urged lawmakers to delay the fix or to make up the shortfalls with state reserve funds so they can avoid, for now, cutting planned services to fit this loss in revenue. The proposed fix, Senate File 181, passed the Iowa House on a vote of 86 to 13 and unanimously passed the Iowa Senate. And the headline, Some schools in Nebraska are going to a four-day work week. And this article was written by Natalie Amadour of the Flatwater Free Press newspaper. Weeping Water School Superintendent Kevin Raymond had a problem. He couldn't find new teachers. And so in the spring of 2022, Raymond took an idea to the school board. What about a four-day school week? Raymond expected the board to take a year to study the possibility. Instead, it voted right on the spot and unanimously, yes. And last fall, Weeping Water became at least the sixth Nebraska school district to adopt a four-day week. It's a move that thrilled the school's teachers, who are burned out after teaching through the pandemic. And it's really worked out a lot better than expected for many parents. But the change also raises questions about whether a four-day week is best for students. The limited research is sometimes worrisome. One study even suggested that students on a four-day week fall behind learning math, for example. 
Another research study found that test scores of four-day students dipped slightly below their five-day counterparts, though a third study showed that four-day students actually did better than five-day students. Instructional time matters. That's a quote from Emily Morton. She's a researcher with an education research nonprofit. She says the amount of time that kids are actually at school is playing into how much they're growing. And as schools struggle to find qualified teachers, more small Nebraska school districts are mulling a four-day week to lure them. Larger school districts use hiring bonuses and retention stipends to attract and keep staff. But that's not an option in places like Weeping Water, where 299 students share one building. Smaller schools, we just don't have the financial resources to throw money at people to stay, Raymond said. I just can't compete. Conestoga Public Schools, Weeping Water's neighbor to the east in Murray, has been on a four-day schedule since 2006, and that district has over 700 students, and they're located near Omaha. They made the switch while trying to dig out of a budget hole that was $1.5 million. 17 years later, the district has stayed on a four-day week because teachers... Parents and students love it. And that's a quote from Eric Dennis, Conestoga Elementary School principal. Four-day school weeks affect a tiny but fast-growing population of U.S. students. Some 1,600 schools had shortened their week by 2019, which is up from 250 schools in 1999. But that current number is likely higher, Morton said. The schedule is used in western states and more rural districts that are smaller. Morton said, quote, Historically, districts adopted this for financial reasons. They don't stay on it for that reason. They stay on it because their community loves it. And the conversation has shifted toward teacher recruitment and retention. At least six Nebraska school districts are in a four-day week. Banner County, Conestoga, Weeping Water, Miniature, Hay Springs, and the Why Not School District. However, nationwide, some states have started to push back on the four-day switch. New Mexico lawmakers pause the move, citing concerns that fewer school days may hurt academic achievement. Oklahoma lawmakers increased the number of days that schools must be in session, making a four-day work week or four-day school week possible. But still, as more states face more teacher vacancies, schools are going to have to get creative, says Banner County's Superintendent Brown. I think we have to rethink what a typical school week is, Brown said. Whether that's a four-day, five-day hybrid, I think there are going to be a lot of changes in the whole education universe moving forward. And reports now from the Wood County, Woodbury County Circuit Court. Before Judge Jeffrey Neary, Heather Leanne Griffin, 39, of Sioux City. Possession with intent to deliver a controlled substance. Drug tax stamp violation. Sentenced on February the 16th to 10 years in prison. 
Corey Ray Groves, 38, of Sioux City. Possession of a controlled substance, third offense on that. Sentenced on February the 15th to five years in prison suspended and three years probation. Nicholas Daniel Polanchek, 23, of Sioux City. Possession with intent to deliver a controlled substance, two counts. Trafficking in stolen weapons, two counts. Carrying a dangerous weapon, sentenced on February the 15th to 15 years in prison, suspended, five years probation, 20 days in jail for dangerous weapons charge. Thomas Edward Merchant, Jr., 39, of Sioux City, sentenced for possession of a controlled substance, his third offense. He was sentenced on February the 13th, five years prison suspended, and two years probation. Jeannie K. Clayman, 38, of Harlan, Iowa, lottery theft, forgery, identity theft, sentenced February the 14th to five years in prison. And before Judge Todd Deck, Anna Lisa Camarena, 53, of Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, sentenced on February the 9th to five years prison suspended and two years probation. Waylon Dean Blackbird, 32, of Sioux City. Domestic abuse, second offense, sentenced on February the 10th, two years prison suspended, two years probation. Jacob Jean Flores, 32, of City of Sioux City. Domestic abuse assault, second offense. Jacob was sentenced on February the 10th to two years prison suspended and two years probation. And before Judge James Dan, Michael Kaufman, 22, of Sioux City, second-degree criminal mischief, sentenced on February the 3rd, five years prison suspended, two years probation. And the headline for this article, Laundromat suffers fire damage cause is under investigation, and this article was written by reporter Dolly Butts. And the headline for this next article, Cedar Rapids man sentenced to 27 years for the fatal shooting of a teen in 2021. And this article was written by reporter Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette, Cedar Rapids. A 19-year-old Cedar Rapids man was sentenced on Friday to 27 years in prison for fatally shooting a 15-year-old Illinois girl in 2021 during a gun sale that turned into a tussle over money and the handgun. Marshawn Rome Jackson, originally charged with first-degree murder, pleaded in December to an amended charge of voluntary manslaughter, intimidation with a dangerous weapon, dominion or control of a firearm by a felon, and obstructing prosecution. He will have to serve a mandatory 10 years before being eligible for parole. His probation on a previous conviction of trafficking in stolen weapons was revoked last year, 
and 6th Judicial District Judge Paul Miller ran the 27 years consecutively to a five-year sentence on that conviction for a total of 32 years in prison. Jackson was also ordered to pay $150,000 in restitution to Tylea Wittes' heirs and their estate. Authorities say Jackson and Wittes knew each other and had hung out in the past, according to first assisted Monica Slaughter after the plea. Wittes was driving her sister's car, and Jackson and another juvenile were in the back seat. Jackson and Wittes wanted to buy a gun from him and wanted to hold it, but Jackson wanted first to see the money. A tussle over the gun began, and Jackson became angry and started getting out of the car. Wittes started accelerating, and Jackson fired the gun, hitting her in the back. And the headline, authorities are investigating and are involved in cleanup after about 31 Union Pacific Railroad coal cars derailed near Gothenburg early Tuesday. According to Robin Tyveser, Union Pacific Railroad Media Relations, the train cars carrying coal derailed at around 1.45 in the morning, about three miles southeast of Gothenburg. No injuries were associated with the derailment. Heavy equipment was brought to the site to clear the cars. One of the three mainline tracks near the derailment was reopened to traffic at about 8 o'clock in the morning. On the other tracks, trains were stopped outside Gothenburg and beyond. The cause of the derailment remains under investigation. Tuesday's incident occurred eight months after 30 Union Pacific coal cars derailed two miles southeast of Gothenburg on May 26th of 2022. And this brief weather note, of course, you probably are already aware of it, but Upper Midwest is bracing for blizzard and early and nearly two feet of snow. This uh, story was written by the Associated Press. A wide swath of the Upper Midwest braced on Tuesday for a historic winter storm that was expected to bring blizzard conditions, bitterly cold temperatures, and two feet of snow. More than a foot of snow was affected in or was expected in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The National Weather Service described it as a historic three-day winter storm that would cause life-threatening travel disruptions. Bitter cold will only make matters worse. In Pierre, South Dakota, the Weather Service says up to 14 inches of snow, 40-mile-an-hour winds, and temperatures in the single digits will pass through the area late Wednesday night and early into Thursday morning. A 19-year-old man was arrested Thursday after Sioux City police say that he eluded peace officers for several miles in a stolen 2004 Toyota Camry. According to Sioux City Police Department records, Myron Allen Dumars refused to comply with the traffic stop, and law enforcement officers then pursued him for several miles before deflating the car's tires with stop sticks. The day before, police say, a 2004 Camry was reported stolen from the 1300 block of Summit Street. The Camry finally stopped in the parking lot of the Hillcrest Shopping Center, 2500 Glen Avenue. That's a quote from a Sioux City Police Department press release. DeMars was then arrested and charged 
with second-degree theft, felony eluding, reckless driving, operating while intoxicated, driving without a license, assault on a peace officer, and failure to obey a traffic control device. Headline. Police seek the public's health as they search for a woman who failed to appear on charges. And this article was written by reporter Earl Horlick. The United States Marshal Service, Northern Iowa Fugitive Task Force, is seeking the following person. Sabrina Bradley, 50. She is 5 foot 5 inches tall and weighs 220 pounds. Bradley is wanted by the U.S. Marshals Service for failure to appear for a pre-trial release revocation hearing. She was on pre-trial release for conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine. Anybody with information, call the Marshals, 712-252-0211. And the headline for this next article, Remsen Woman Sentenced to Prison Theft from Dependent Adult, and this is written by reporter Nick Hightrack. A Remsen, Iowa woman was sentenced on Monday to five years in prison for stealing thousands of dollars from a dependent adult who was unable to make his own decisions. Samantha Hageman, 44, pleaded guilty in September in Sioux County District Court to one count of second-degree theft, which was amended from first-degree theft as a part of a plea agreement. A charge of forgery was also dismissed. She was ordered to pay $19,450 in restitution to the victim's estate. Hegeman obtained money from May 2021 through November 2021 through ATM withdrawals, transactions at businesses, and checks from the victim who lived in a whole Iowa nursing home. And the headline for this next article, Briarcliff announces $4.5 million residence hall renovation. And this article was written by the staff of the Sioux City Journal. Briarcliff University will soon begin a $4.5 million renovation to its largest residence hall, Alverno Hall, and the work is scheduled to begin this coming May. The Sioux City College announced in a statement released on Tuesday that over 100 dorm rooms, 8 community bathrooms, and all common spaces will be remodeled. The renovation is expected to be complete in December of 2023. Officials say the renovation will include new flooring, new paint, updated windows, furniture, and more. Fire Cliff has partnered with Project Advocates and Clinger Construction to complete the renovation. Alverno Hall houses up to 226 students per year. Improvements to our residence halls have been a common request by our students, and we are excited to start this very important work with our largest facility. And that's a quote from Anne Oatman. She is Briarcliff's Interim Vice President of Finance. And she continues, We are grateful for the ongoing collaboration with our students to ensure that this renovation will meet their needs and the needs of future chargers. 
and during the fall 2023 semester before the work is complete, students will be housed in Toller Hall, Noonan Hall, and the Baxter de Giovanni Center. We look forward to witnessing the new memories yet to be made and how Vernal Hall, beginning in the spring semester of 2024, Oatman said. And the headline for this next article. This is a good time to see bald eagles in Siouxland. When you've got bald eagles soaring, swooping and diving in the air outside, it's hard not to take a break, walk to the observation room on the north side of the Lewis and Clark Visitor Center, and spend a few minutes watching what they're up to. Situated on a bluff above Gavin's Point Dam in the Missouri River, the Visitor Center gives Smith a front row seat to dozens of bald eagles that can be seen some winter days snagging fish from the unfrozen water below the dam or keeping watch from the tall trees lining the river. You feel like you can literally reach out and touch them when they fly by the Visitor Center, said Smith, a park ranger. It's a very pretty sight. And there's just something about seeing a bald eagle that never gets old. Catching a glimpse of that white head gleaming, uh, gleaming in the sunshine while driving past the tall trees near river always leads to the temptation to pull the car over and watch. What's the attraction? Maybe because for so long seeing a bald eagle was a rare sight in this country. After years of hunting, poisoning and the use of the pesticide DDT, our national symbol's population had dropped so low that it was placed on the endangered species list. Back when I started birding in the early 1970s, it was rare to see one in the winter. And that's a quote from Bill Huser of South Sioux City. And I know people back in the day that had never seen one before. Bald eagles never did nest around here, Huser said, but many now do. And you are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, February the 22nd, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now, let's turn to today's obituaries. Rebecca Bashorner passed away on Thursday, December 29, 2022, at the age of 75, of heart failure in her winter home of Donna, Texas. Services will be held with immediate family only. Becky grew up in Whiting, Iowa, and was the daughter of Clarence and Jana Johnson. She is survived by her husband, Fred Beshorner, children David, Tim, Michael, and Emily, two sisters, Pam Hanoe of Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Joan Bach of Volo, Illinois, three grandchildren, Caden, Maya, Liam, and nieces and nephews. Robert Bob Fla of Arlington Heights, Illinois, passed away on Wednesday, February 15th. He was born on December 11, 1937, in Sioux City to Alvin and Anna Flaw. He is survived by his children, Lori Montgomery, Trish Flaw, and Megan and Frank Hamilton. 
grandchildren, Zach and Michelle Montgomery, and Lyndon Hamilton, and brother David and Mary Lou Flaw. He was preceded in death by his wife, Judith Flaw, parents Alvin and Anna Flaw, son Robert Donald Flaw, son-in-law Bill Montgomery, and siblings Alice Flanders and Richard and the late Vera Flaw. In lieu of flowers, the family requests that donations be made in Bob's memory to St. Jude. Lori A. Gabriel, 62, passed away on Saturday, February the 11th, after a short battle with cancer. Celebration of life will be held at a later time and date. Arrangements are under the direction of Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City, Iowa. Lori was born in San Diego, California, on November 26, 1960, but lived in Sioux City, most of her life. She is survived by her sons, Sean Smith and Alicia Steig, Richard Gunn, and partner Brittany, and Dustin and Jenny Smith. Father Keith Smith, brothers Myron and Susan Smith, Larry Smith and Lonnie and Cheryl Smith, Sister Connie and Mark Bauer, 13 grandchildren, aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, and nephews. Lori was preceded in death by her mother, Rosemary Smith, brother Jody Smith, and maternal grandmother, Mary Hayden, and paternal grandparents, Charles and Estella Smith. Mary Louise Corey Glan of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, but formerly of Sioux City, 99 years old, passed away on Thursday, February the 9th. Arrangements are with Smith and Kernke Funeral Directors in Oklahoma City. She was born on April 24, 1923 in Sioux City, the daughter of Moses Thomas and Amelia Michael Corey. She graduated from Central High School in 1941 and then went to business school. And after completing her studies, she joined Windcharger as a secretary to the plant superintendent. Mary enlisted into the United States Marine Corps' Women's Reserves in Des Moines, Iowa, in May 1943 at the age of 20, and she served until September 1945. She was one of about 19,000 women who enlisted to, quote, be a Marine and free a Marine to fight. And these 19,000 women free the equivalent of a whole division of men to fight in the war effort. She was most proud of being in the original group of women, the few and the proud, to join the U.S. Marine Corps' Women's Reserve in World War II. She is thought of to be one of the last surviving Women's Marine Corps Reserve members in the state of Oklahoma. She met James R. Glan at Navy Marine Corps Unit Training in Sioux City and married a year later in July of 1953. They have six children that she said she always would kept her young in heart. Alan, Cynthia, Mark, Valerie, Judith, and Mary Catherine. 
She used her secretarial skills to assist her husband in his cattle dealer business, and they were married 57 years before he passed away in 2010. She is survived by her six children, five grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, and numerous nieces and nephews. And she was preceded in death by her parents, husband, four sisters, four brothers, and was the last surviving member of her Corey family. She is survived by her six children, five grandchildren, two great-grandchildren, and numerous nieces and nephews, and Mary was a part of the greatest generation and a force of nature who was cherished by all who loved her. Robert D. Hockenberry, 67, of Denver, Colorado, but formerly of Sioux City, passed away on Monday, February 13th. Robert died from severe COPD that was caused by 40 years of heavy cigarette smoking. Per his wishes, he was cremated and his ashes were scattered in a private service. He was born in Sioux City on December 7, 1955, to Kenneth and Janet Hockenberry. He attended Floyd and Hunt grade schools, North Junior, and graduated from North High School in 1974. He achieved his Master of Business in Accounting degree, and in 1987, he moved to Denver to become part of the faculty at the business school at the University of Colorado in downtown Denver. He became a senior instructor, teaching a full-time load for 27 years, and he retired in 2014. In 2007, Robert married Beigel Delga George. Beigel is a proud emigrant from Mongolia with many interesting customs and foods that she shared with her American husband. They enjoyed traveling extensively throughout the U.S. during this, his summer breaks from teaching college. and They both learned much about the history and beauty of Beigel's new country of citizenship. Robert is survived by his loving wife, sister, two brothers, and many nieces and nephews. And now turning to the opinion page of the February 22nd Sioux City Journal newspaper. And uh, we'll start off with a letter to the editor with the headline, The Financial Potential for CO2. Most current carbon capture information states that CO2 will simply be stored deep underground. However, further information illustrates the financial potential and additional uses for all of this CO2. Obviously, when you spend billions of dollars, and that's billions with a B, to capture CO2, you have to make a profit somewhere. And curiously, Jay Ketzner, Summit VPs of Government and Public Affairs, was Governor Reynolds' chief of staff. Jeffrey Boynick, a registered lobbyist for Summit, was the chief of staff and campaign manager for Iowa's previous governor, Terry Branstad, who now works as chief policy advisor for Summit Carbon Solutions. The three-person Iowa Utilities Board will ultimately decide if the proposed carbon pipeline projects can operate in this state. 
Its members are appointed by the governor. Two of the three-person Iowa Utility Board members were appointed by Governor Terry Branstad. One board member, Richard Lozier, was a lawyer for the lobbying group that urged support for the Dakota Access Pipeline. These, quote, capture companies store it until technological advances are solidified and then create profitable fuels. And that letter to the editor about carbon capture was submitted to the newspaper by Timothy Getty of Hinton, Iowa. And here is another letter to the editor with the headline, The Stockyards Were Significant in Sioux City's History. No one will or can ever deny the role that the stockyards played in the industrial-like evolution of our city. In fact, the beloved Sioux City Museum, a great attraction, showcases everything that was great about the past and more. I encourage everyone to check out the museum multiple times per year. Now, welcome to the year 2023 and welcome change. Sioux City is on track, if done correctly, to majorly welcome new visitors through youth sports, which turn into new businesses and new developments. In responding to a recent article about the future demolition of the last Swift building in the remaining stockyards, one cannot get emotional about the history when you clearly have to do what is best for business now. There is always someone out there previously who didn't embrace change in their generation, but future generations since have relied on the change for a better outcome. And by demolishing an unsafe and red-tagged building, one is not destroying history, one is actually embracing it. I will always be on the side of embracing the future. The evolution of Sioux City, our collective future, is brighter than ever before if you let it unfold in a positive manner. It's always great to be passionate about what's been accomplished in the past because that has always led to today. The future is a collective group effort from today. Let's all work together and make Sioux City great again. And that letter to the editor was written by Jake Junkers of Sioux City. And now from the opinion page, the columnist of regular columnist Dan Lee and headline, The Chinese Balloon and What Does It Mean? For signals intelligence. And again, this piece is written by regular columnist Dan Lee. Signals intelligence refers to collecting information from various types of transmissions that are intercepted. Those transmission signals might be radar signals, cell phone signals, or anything else that is transmitted in the form of radio waves. When I was on active duty in the Navy, we intercepted Soviet fleet commands, radar waves used to aim and guide missiles, and pretty much anything else we could get our hands on as long as we were operating in international waters, unlike the Chinese balloon. For example, we would go to within four miles of the shore of an unfriendly country to see if we could get them to aim their missiles at us. 
and if they did, they we recorded those signals of the radar systems used to aim the missiles. You see, there was a very thin line between being a sitting duck and a dead duck. But being a spy is not a risk-free endeavor. When we returned to port, the tapes would, sent, would be sent to the National Security Agency headquarters in Fort Meade, Maryland, where technicians would analyze the tapes and develop jamming signals that would incapacitate these countries' radar guidance. Ever wonder why U.S. planes can so easily penetrate the airspace of an unfriendly country? Well, now you know. But back to the Chinese balloon. The official explanation is that the U.S. government waited until the balloon was no longer overpopulated areas of this country before shooting it down, which probably has a kernel of truth in it. But there is also a high probability that there is far more to the story. It is a fair assumption that the Pentagon wanted some additional time to observe the balloon and learn what they could about it before shooting it down. Of particular interest was undoubtedly the transmission system that channeled data gathered by the balloon's sensors to its Chinese handlers. Now, if that could be jammed, this would render the balloon completely useless as a source of signals and intelligence. Now, one official line is authorities in the United States stated that the Chinese handlers turned off the transmission mechanism. That might or might not be what actually happened. It might have been jammed by the United States military. And because the Pentagon hoped to recover the sensor devices from the balloon as intact as possible, shooting it down over the Rocky Mountains would not have been a particularly good way of doing this. Instead, shooting it down offshore with the debris landing in only 47 feet of water was a far better way of accomplishing this objective. And indeed, that is precisely what happened with the sensor devices now reportedly in U.S. hands. There is undoubtedly a lot that the intelligence community would like to know about the sensor devices. For example, what were they designed to detect? And an even more important question is what type of a filtration system did they use? The Earth's atmosphere is an electronic jungle with all sorts of radio waves and other signals flying through it. And to glean useful information, it is necessary to block out all extraneous signals and focus on the signals that are of particular interest. And if the very smart analyst at the National Security Agency or elsewhere can determine how this filtration system works, it's then theoretically possible to develop techniques for jamming it, resulting in the entire system being useless. And because the techniques for jamming are very closely guarded secrets, and must remain so, we will probably never know what technicians at the NSA and elsewhere are capable of doing. And so suffice it to say that there is a lot going on that is shrouded in high levels of secrecy and must remain that way. And that opinion piece was written by Dan Lee, who, of course, you uh, hear his writings a lot. 
Dan Lee is a regular columnist, and he is the, the Marion Taft Cannon Professor of the Humanities at the College of Augustana. And turning now back to news, headline, Sioux City will soon be testing machines that will read license plates off of cameras. South Sioux City is planning to try out license plate reading cameras in the coming months. After receiving City Council approval for a pilot program, Sioux City Police Chief Ed Mann said that 30 to 34 of Flock Safety's automated license plate reading cameras will be tested. He said that most of the cameras will be placed within Sioux City limits, but noted that Dakota County is also looking at the camera system. It's a camera that will take very, very high-resolution images of cars as they travel past and away from the camera, said Mann, who hopes the PIDA program will be up and running by April. They call them a license plate reading system, but the camera doesn't just read the plates. Mayor said that South Sioux City learned about the cameras from the Kearney Police Department in Nebraska. He said that the North Platte and Council Bluffs Police Departments are considering the exact same camera system. This system has been well received in cities that have used them, he said. Flock safety software can determine a vehicle's make, model, and color, according to Mann. And besides reading a vehicle's plate, Mann said that the software can also, quote, read other things on the vehicle such as dents and bumper stickers, to try, to try to fingerprint the vehicle. For example, if there's a large dent on one of the back fenders, it'll image that, and you can query that, said Mann, who noted that there are quite a few cameras in the city, but none that can focus enough to capture such detail. These new camera systems could help investigators solve a wide variety of crimes, including thefts, homicides, and shots fired, according to Mann. We can query our system and say, was there any red Toyota Celicas in South Sioux City at this time? And it would give investigators a list of vehicles that might be that vehicle, he said. And then with that list, they could start working down and tracking down perpetrators of a crime. Now, when the pilot program actually kicks off and starts running is dependent on obtaining permits, according to Mann. He said that camera locations are currently being narrowed down. And after the testing is complete, Mann said the department will be able to determine the best cameras and which ones provide the most information for the money that the taxpayers spend. And then that would be given to the city council, and the council would then decide how many cameras we're going to get, if we are going to get any at all, he says. And turning now to sports from the Sioux City Journal newspaper, the Iowa Hawkeyes women's basketball team on Saturday won. They beat Nebraska by the score of 80-60. to 60. Currently, Iowa is number 7 in the nation. Iowa women basketball team will uh, next host uh, Indiana, and that game will be held at home on Sunday starting at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And actually, that'll be a pretty critical game because uh, 
Iowa is in second place in the Big Ten Conference. Leading the conference, Indiana. The Iowa Hawkeyes are 14-2 in conference and 22-5 overall. And on the men's side, the Iowa Hawkeyes were quiet at the start. Uh, In their game this past Sunday, they were quiet from three-point range all night and then quiet about what led to the ejection of head coach Fran McCaffrey in an 80-60 loss to the Northwestern Wildcats. By the way, the loss denied Iowa a chance to move into a tie for second place in the Big Ten Conference race. Again, Iowa lost to Northwestern 80-60. It wasn't really a very good night for shooting for Iowa. They shot just 12% from three-point range, matching a season low by hitting just three of 24 three-point attempts. Iowa Athletics financially is nearing pre-pandemic norms. The department's most recent NCAA financial report shows Iowa netted a profit of $338,231 in the 2021-2022 fiscal year. It's the first time since 2019 that the University of Iowa sports revenue exceeded expenses although that profit margin from last year remains significantly below the $5.7 million profit from that year. Everything is going in the right direction, and that's a quote from Greg Davies, the athletic department's chief financial officer. This just gives an overall picture of the entire department financially, Davies said. Really, our operating income and expenses is right on target. Iowa's 2021-2022 profit would have been higher had it not been for a $3 million payment. As the University of Iowa begins to repay its $50 million low-interest loan from the university during COVID-19, Iowa is scheduled to pay back the loan over a 15-year period, an average of $3.33 million per year to pay the loan back on time. As we go forward, we would love to pay it off faster if we can. And that's a quote from Athletics Director Gary Barda. Every year, we will now budget an amount going into the year toward that debt service. And continuing now with sports, the Cyclones of Iowa State in men's basketball defeated a higher-ranked team this past, or lost to a higher-ranked team this past Saturday. Kansas State beat Iowa State 61-55. to And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal newspaper, dated Wednesday, February the 22nd. I'm your reader, Kevin Boucher. You know, you could listen and access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening.